call centers, those invisible nests of operators that purport to help citizens with questions about government services, they're a bane to agency after agency. Calls don't get picked up or people make a pot of coffee while they're on hold. Questions aren't answered. Callers get bounced from operator to operator. Worst of all, those badly designed automatic call routers that end up with problems not resolved. There's got to be a better way. Deloitte Consulting and Savannah College of Art and Design did a deep dive into the matter and came up with ways to make federal call centers empathetic. Here with the details, Deloitte Principal Mark Mancher. Mark, good to have you back. Hey, good to be back, Tom. Hope you're well today. This idea of empathetic means what exactly and what can call centers do to become empathetic, but not just empathetic, but actually get the problem resolved? Let's put all the listeners in a mindset here. When you call into a contact center, you always start with a very positive intent in your mind. I got a problem. I need it solved. I'm going to go get help. And you first come into the contact center and it says, you know, hello, and your mind's good. And then it says, push one. And as soon as it says, push one, push two, Tom, what happens? Your mind starts to drift on this, going how many options are out there, right? Now, if you hear push one, push two, push three, push four. By this time, you're already losing your confidence in, is this contact center going to be able to help me? So you push a number. And then it says to you, thank you. Now, push one here, push two, so you go into another tree. And you get in this endless loop. And about this point, what do we all start doing? We all start yelling, operator, 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 or pushing zero, 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 or pound, 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 because we want to get out of this thing that we believe is slow, ineffective, impersonal, and is not going to help me solve my problem. And increasingly, pushing the zero or asking for an operator doesn't get you there anyway. It does not get you there anyway. The actual reality is if call center IVRs or automatic call distributors are designed correctly, they actually can improve your ability to get resolved. And sometimes and often that's not actually talking to a human being. It's using something that's automated. But we don't allow it to get there because our IVRs are not designed correctly. What would we expect from the behavioral side of an IVR. When we dial in from the behavioral side, what would be great? First of all, if it comes up and it says to you, hello, Tom, well, you know you've already been identified. And there's technology out there that reads your voice that can identify who you are. So you can immediately be identified so it knows who you are. Or it knows the number you're calling from. Or it knows the number you're calling from, correct. It could then say to you, there's four options you're going to listen to. You immediately set your brain on, I'm only going to hear four things. And then it could say to you, after you push one, your wait time is going to be eight minutes. What have we done? We've immediately set the context that it knows who you are, how you know much time you're going to spend here, and enables you to be part of the conversation, not just spoken at. And what about the idea of, once it identifies you, being able to pull data from other transactions. For example, suppose you had a fail at a website. Could the call center know that and therefore understand what it is you're trying to do even before you call? So when you use the technology that already exists in the marketplace, the empathetic technology, soon as you're identified either through your phone number or your voice footprint or whatever means it is, the technology exists today for the agent 
to get something, and the jargon is called a CTI pop, but to get something which is your information, which says Tom filled out an application for XYZ. We sent him a request for his driver's license, and he never sent it in. So I could say, as soon as you come on the phone, welcome, Tom. I see you filled this out. You're 99% there. Do you have your driver's license? By the way, we have a way of receiving that. If you take a picture of it, we can complete it right now. We have enabled better service through the technology. We're speaking with Mark Mancher. He's a principal at Deloitte Consulting. And tell us more about the study that you did with Savannah College of Art and Design. I mean, there are models, I guess, that are out there in the commercial world that exemplify the best in what the government could adopt if it gets to it. Sure. The thesis for the study with uh, SCAD, Santa College for Art and Design, was not about the technology to start with. It was about the behavioral science of the contact center and how do we promote equity in our contact centers. So if we think about those parameters of it, we wanted to understand why do people push zero and why do people yell operator? And I talked about this a little bit. We had the students go out into the community. We worked with the students to listen to multiple commercial and public sector IVRs, what worked and what didn't work. And what we discovered through the primary research was that if IVRs, first of all, have warmth and tone of variety, just to start with. Now, I don't endorse any companies, but if you happen to call Audible, you know, they probably don't want me to say this because everyone's going to call and listen. If you dial their call center, the very first thing it says is, please be nice to our agents because it's setting the tone on. We want to help you. Let's have a partnership here. I guess we often forget if you get to that person on the other end of the line and you're already hot to stab, then that can also wreck their day and your day. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, the agents are always trained in empathy, but I love that they say, please be nice to our agents. And then they say, here's what you're going to hear. Here's how we're going to help you. Here's how long you're going to wait. And they set the, the right thing. Context setting is really important. If at the beginning of a call, like we talked about, you can set context for the call with a person, you immediately get in the right frame of mind. Now, let's talk about equity. Equity is very, very important. There's a lot of people in the workforce today who can't wait an hour on the phone to talk to somebody to receive a public service because they have a job to do, they have a child to watch, they have a mother or father to watch, they have some other condition in their life that doesn't enable them to. They need to receive service where they are, when they need it, and with sometimes the communication mode. Like if you are in Montana, you may not be in a spot that has broadband or you may be in a spot that has cell coverage. So how do we also enable equity? And when you use empathetic technologies and multiple channels, you enable, first of all, people to get into the channel. But while they're in the channel, maybe I can send you a link to something in a way that you can receive it And that way you can get the service you need when you need it, how you need it, and where you need it. For then the IVRs, the call center automation really needs to be tied in as part of an omni-channel approach. Absolutely. And omni-channel is an overused word in the industry. Everything is omni this, omni that. What you really want to do in the contact center space, and we worked with SCAD on this, we write about this in the study a little bit, is you want to understand the personas, the people that need to use the service need to understand how they can use the service, when they can use the service, where they can use the service. So that way, as our contact centers are reaching out to these folks or people are coming into the centers, 
you have that omni-channel capability to enable the right service to be delivered to our citizens. I mean, there's really no end of how far this can go when you think about it. Suppose you're Social Security or Medicare, and it's likely that your callers are older, you know, senior citizens or whatever over word, overused word you want to use. They could maybe design the system of interaction with that in mind, whereas if someone is trying to get a park license to hike down the Grand Canyon, chances are they're not 80 or 90 years old and therefore a different type of system or a different type of persona might be calling. Would that be taking it too far? Or even if they're calling from a smartphone versus a flip phone, because there are still people that use flip phones, and that could give the center a clue as to which response to invoke. Is that far-fetched? It's not far-fetched at all. The problem, Tom, is that our public sector procurement systems don't allow for that type of interaction to be purchased. We tend to focus on brand names of technology. We tend to focus on what did someone do five years ago and represent it into solicitations. The requirements of the solicitations rarely say equity, rarely say empathy. They don't say that. I'm, you know, My hat's off to uh, organizations like CMS where I'm starting to see the primary piece of solicitations that come out have things like equity in it. My hat's off because that way more people can get insurance. There's, if we're going to provide services, we have to get out of buying labels, brand names, or asking for what did you do five years ago? Nobody, not nobody, most people don't want to buy an iPhone 3. They want to buy the most recent iPhone. Again, I don't promote Apple products, but you know they want to buy the most recent technology. So we have to allow the requirements to the bidders to receive rewards for empathy, for equity, for those types of things as opposed to other items. So you're absolutely right. And there are metrics by which you can measure empathy. For example, if the problem gets resolved in a certain amount of time that's faster than before and the resolution rate is higher, that's a pretty good indicator too. So yes, in addition to that, with an empathetic technology that exists today, you can listen to the call recordings and you can grade them on the person who made the call. You know, how did the agent do in, in this interaction? And did they service our citizens with the right amount of empathy? And you can train off of that. That technology exists today. And you can go one step further. The empathetic technology that exists today allows for a supervisor to be alerted if a call starts to go sideways in any way, so we can immediately hop in and help a citizen right there and not have to do it afterwards. That exists today in the marketplace. It just has to be part of the way a system's procured. Mark Mancher is a principal at Deloitte Consulting. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the research paper, and I recommend reading it at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University, and spent the majority of her career at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did. You know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. 
And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? 
You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.